Amen. Thank you, uh, Gary. I want to uh, welcome our live streamers, and I apologize. On Communion Sunday, we often start later, so a lot of our live streamers have been kind of waiting. Uh, typically, we start the live stream about 1020, 1030. Uh, so anyway, thanks for your patience. Uh, you were probably wondering, what in the world happened? Did they get raptured and I got left behind? <laughs> Don't ever have to worry about that. If you know the Lord, you'll be right there in the clouds with us. So, uh, But uh, always great to celebrate the Lord's Supper. We do that here at Plum Creek every third Sunday or on Sundays that have five Sundays, the fifth Sunday. And so that was the case uh, here in July. Before we uh, take a look at Nehemiah, and you can go ahead and open your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 5, I, I want to uh, just take a moment to kind of do something a little bit different. Uh, the Lord put this on my heart yesterday. Um, that was not what the Lord put on my heart. I don't know what that was. Uh, but uh, anyway, uh, we, uh, I, want, I want you to just think about why are you here today. And you'll, I'll explain why this is here in just a second. I'm going to share a story that uh, something my wife and I experienced this weekend. But uh, as you come to to church on Sunday mornings, uh, and, and you know, and, and especially Plum Creek Chapel, why are you here? So someone just you know shout out why why are you here today? Anybody praise to praise God? Fellowship. Fellowship, good. Study the Word, and what did someone say? To get closer to the Lord, that's good. I can't see who said that, but it's right. Oh, thank you. Okay. Be edified. Praise God. Anybody else? You came because you have the Spirit within you? Oh, amen. Yes, all believers do, but hope, yeah, hopefully I'm letting the Holy Spirit speak in and through me for sure. Praise God. Anybody else? To, to be with like-minded people, that's a biggie, and to hear the word rightly divided, yeah. To hear the whole counsel of the Lord. Yeah, a lot of these are repetitious from the 830 service, which is really interesting. Uh, you guys really know the word, and you know why you're here, yeah. To build one another up in the faith, amen. Because it's commanded, good. And that's a good segue into what, uh, what I want to talk about. Uh, and this is somewhat related to the message today, but I just wanted to take a moment and and share this. So uh, Wendy and I were in town yesterday for a celebration of life service, and on the way home, we uh, we, or we actually sp stayed in, in, in town last night. But we uh, we kind of looked at the clock and hey, what what do you want to do? And I thought, well, I'm here with my girlfriend. Let's let's have a little date, right? So I said, Let, let's see if there's any movies showing. So I'm driving down uh, 470, and she's looking on her phone, and we discover this movie called The Essential. Church. Anybody heard of it? I had not either. Uh, it was completely new to me, but she starts reading it. It's a documentary. It was showing at the main, you know, in, in, in one of the main theaters, AMC Theater there. And I thought, wow, that's right up my alley. It's all about the church and the COVID response. And it's a documentary. And you can send, tell by the name where, where it was going, the essential church. And man, I got to tell you, it is a must-see, extremely well done, two-hour documentary, uh, and it, it, it really explains the biblical, proper biblical understanding of Romans 13 and why it was so disastrous that so many churches 
bowed down and worshipped at the altar of government and allowed the government to dictate what the churches do, told us how to do church, when to do church, what to do at church, where to sit at church, what to wear at church, and so on and so forth. Um, and it's based on three churches uh, that uh, suffered immensely, two in Canada, one in the United States. So pastors were arrested, things like that, um, as they simply tried to do what the Word of God said. But what makes it so exceptional as a documentary is, A, it handles the Word of God correctly, uh, B, it, it juxtaposes some of the similar types of things that happened in the Middle Ages when the king of England was mandating that churches do church a certain way. They had to read certain books and say certain prayers within the church. And if you didn't comply, you were arrested. And it even got worse than that. And this was the real heart-wrenching part. And again, it was the production quality was outstanding. Uh, many Christians back in, especially in Scotland, uh, were martyred, were killed brutally, simply because they wouldn't do church the way the government told them to do church. And uh, just a fascinating film. And the reason I asked you why you're here today is it's going to be more and more important as we see things unraveling in our culture around us today to be prepared for what comes next, to be prepared the next time the government tells us when we can have church, where we can have church, how long we can have church, how many people can come to church, where you can sit when you come to church, what you can sing when you come to church, what you must wear when you come to church. And uh, so a couple of caveats about the movie. Again, it's called The Essential Church. It's a documentary. Highly recommend it. But I do want to give a couple of caveats. Uh, you know, my passion is the clarity, accuracy, and urgency of the gospel. Uh, and this do uh, documentary actually does a, a very good job of articulating the gospel at one point in the flow of the documentary, even though that wasn't the main point of it. But it is based upon a church that really led the way in standing up to the government, but is a church that I'm not a big fan of the way that church articulates the gospel, and that's a Grace Community Church in California, John MacArthur. People who followed our ministry for 30 years know that you know, I've, I've made no uh, uh, secret of the fact that I disagree with some of Dr. MacArthur's uh, teachings. Uh, but nevertheless, I believe giving credit where credit is due. And back during the height of the pandemic, when his, he and his elders produced a letter explaining why they were not going to shut down, I commended him for that. He was spot on, and their understanding of Romans 13 was spot on, and, and praise God that they emboldened a lot of other churches, hundreds, thousands of other churches, to do the same thing once they sent that letter. Uh, but I just want to clarify, I'm not necessarily endorsing uh, everything Dr. MacArthur says theologically, although he's, you know, he loves the Lord, he loves his word, I'm not questioning his integrity. Um, but the film actually does a pretty good job when he does clarify the gospel. If you're a student of, you know, kind of theology and the clarity of the gospel, you'll pick up on a couple of things. Uh, most people probably wouldn't, but he talks about federal headship, for example, and he also talks about, um, at one point when he says Jesus uh, God sent his son to the earth to, to, to die for the sins of those who would believe. Well, that's true, but that's not all that's true. You know, he died for the sins of the whole world, but of course, MacArthur doesn't believe that. He believes he only died for the elect. Um, but anyway, again, nothing that would uh, not correctly articulate the gospel. But that's not the point. The point is it, it does an exceptional job of handling Romans 13, talking about history of 2,000 years of church history of how the, the government often tries to come in, and correctly under, explains that there are three spheres of God's divine design, the church, the family, and the state. And although many people teach that the state is over the church and the church must obey the state, uh, that's not at all the case. When, when 
you know, we have three separate uh, avenues of God's divine design, and we are accountable to God first and foremost in each one of those. And uh, so anyway, highly recommend it. I don't usually recommend uh, a lot of movies, uh, but that's one you need to see. And uh, I encourage everybody in the Not By Works and Plum Creek families to take the time to see it. I don't know where all it's showing. Again, we stumbled on it, and I'm glad we did. So it's called The Essential uh, Church. Well, let's turn our attention to the book of Nehemiah as we talk about a group of Christians in a different time, 450 years before Christ. Uh, the Jewish people had been, restore, had been returning to their land in different waves, uh, and uh, the, under the leadership of Nehemiah, they were rebuilding the walls around their great city, and God used Nehemiah to do that. And uh, last time we talked about some enemies that they faced from without, and we're gonna. There's more to come from those enemies. We're not done with them yet. But today in chapter five, what we see is some enemies from within. And sometimes we are our own worst enemy. Sometimes we shoot ourselves in the foot, right? Uh, according to the FBI, most modern-day bank robberies are quote unsophisticated and unprofessional crimes, end quote. Most modern-day bank robberies are committed by young male repeat offenders who apparently don't know the first thing about robbing a bank. For instance, it's reported that in spite of the widespread use of surveillance cameras, 76% of these brilliant bank robbers don't use a disguise. 86% never study the bank before robbing it, and 95% make no plans for concealing the loot. Here's a few examples of some dumb bank robbers who were, as Shakespeare might put it, hoisted by their own petard. They were their own worst enemy. For example, a fellow in Anaheim, California, tried to hold up a bank that was no longer in business and had no money. Another California robber ran into his mother at the bank while making his getaway, and she turned him in. That's the funny part. Uh, that's what my mom would do, I think. Thanks, Mom. Uh, and, and here's a, a suggestion. Uh, I mean, this might seem obvious uh, if you ever rob a bank, but not to these people. Don't sign your demand note. <laughs> uh, demand notes have been written. This is from the FBI. Demand notes have been written on the back of a subpoena issued in the name of the bank robber. That was in Pittsburgh. On an envelope bearing the name and address of a bank robber in Detroit. And I love this one. In East Hartford, Connecticut, the bank robber wrote his demand note on the back of a pre-printed withdrawal slip that had his name and account number on it. Bank robbers in Florida once took a wrong turn after, as they were making their getaway and ended up on Homestead Air Force Base. And uh, as they came to the guard shack that they had to go through to get on the uh, base, they didn't even know where they were. They thought it was a toll booth, and they started offering the security guard money to let them through the base. Not a good idea. That was an easy collar. Uh, and then finally, my favorite, a man successfully broke into a bank's basement through a street-level window. Now, he had to shatter the glass. There were shards of glass everywhere. He cut himself up quite a bit in the process. And once he got inside, he realized three things. First, he, he couldn't get to where the money was from where he was. Well, that's a problem when you're trying to rob the bank. But secondly, he realized due to the nature of where the window was and where he landed, he could not climb back out of the window through which he had entered. And then the third thing he realized is he was ble bleeding pretty badly. 
And uh, so he did what any you know rational, brilliant bank robber would do. He called 911 for help. Um, sometimes we are our own worst enemy. And uh, you know, as I said, up to this point, the enemies had been Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem, uh, but now the Jewish people found themselves hindered in doing God's work from within. There were some, some cracks in the armor, uh, so to speak. And I want to take a moment to read just for context, and then we'll just uh, point out three characteristics of an internal problem. But follow along and listen along as I read. By the way, if you don't have a Bible or you know someone who needs a Bible, we have a whole stack of brand new Bibles out on the lobby table as you exit. Feel free to take one or more. Give them away. That's what they're there for. Um, but let's pick it up in verse 1 of Nehemiah chapter 5. And there was a great outcry of the people and their wives against their Jewish brethren. For there were those who said, we, are, we, our sons and our daughters, are many, therefore let us get green, they, that we may eat and live. There were also some who said, we have mortgaged our lands and vineyards and houses, that we might buy grain because of the famine. And there were also those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our lands and vineyards. Yet now our flesh is as the flesh of our brethren, our children as their children. And indeed, we are forcing our sons and daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have been brought into slavery. It is not in our power to redeem them, for other men have laid our lands uh, and vineyards. And I became very angry when I heard their outcry, Nehemiah said, and these words. After serious thought, I rebuked the nobles and rulers and said to them, Each of you is exacting usury from his brother. In other words, charging interest, exorbitant interest. So I called a great assembly against them. Nehemiah always, as we've seen, was calculated, deliberate, prayerful, intentional in his responses, so he gave it serious thought, then he called an assembly, and he said to them, according to our ability, we have redeemed our Jewish brethren who were sold to the enemy nations. Now, indeed, will you even sell our brethren, or should they be sold to us? And then they were silenced and found nothing to say. They came under conviction, in other words. And then I said, what, are you, what you are doing is not good. Should you not walk in the fear of God? We're going to talk about what that means in a second. Should you not walk in the fear of God because of the reproach of the nations and our enemies? In other words, you're embarrassing God in front of these enemy nations. I also, with my brethren and my servants, am lending them money and grain. Please let us stop this usury. Restore now to them, even this day, their lands, their vineyards, their olive groves, and their houses, also a hundredth of the money and the grain, the new wine and the oil that you have charged them. And so they said, we will restore it and will require nothing from them. We will do as you say. Then I called the priests and required an oath from them that they would do according to this promise. Then I shook out the fold of my garment and said, so may God shake out each man from his house and from his property who does not perform this promise. Even thus may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, amen, and praised the Lord. And then the people did according to this promise. Moreover, from that time I was appointed uh, to be their governor in the land of Judah from the 20th year until the 32nd year of King Artaxerxes, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the governor's provisions. So the king, would, if you were appointed governor, he would give you certain provisions, an allowance, food. It was just one of the perks of being a governor. Nehemiah said, we didn't take him up on that. He says, but the former governors who were before me 
they laid burdens on the people, and they took from them bread and wine besides forty shekels of silver. Yes, even their servants bore rule over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. Indeed, I also continued the work on this wall, and we did not buy any land. All my servants were gathered there for the work. And at my table were 150 Jews and rulers, besides those who came to us from the nations around us. And now that which was prepared daily was one ox and six choice sheep. So remember, he was allowed, given food from the king, but he didn't take it. It was also a custom in Persia at that time that governors would invite lots of people to their table every day. And in this case, it was 150. But Nehemiah is saying, we didn't take the king's provisions we, of our own expenses, provided for this community uh, meal. Also, fowl were prepared before me, and once every ten days, an abundance of all kinds of wine. Yet in spite of this, I did not demand the governor's provisions, because the bondage was heavy on this people. Remember me, my God, for good, according to all that I have done for this people. So let's just dive in. I see three characteristics in Nehemiah's example, anyway, of an internal problem. The first thing is the people were characterized by a discontentment with their circumstances. They were discontent. They were grumbling. They were complaining. They were whining. And as we read, chapter 5 introduces us to three groups of complainers, each indicated by the clause, there were those who said. Remember, we saw that three times. The people were grumbling about each other, at each other, about their circumstances, the first thing we read there in verse 1 is they were there was an outcry against their Jewish brethren. That's an indication that this was an internal conflict. Uh, and then he goes on to say, there were those who said. So the first group that was complaining and discontent was saying, we don't have enough food to feed our families. We're hungry. And there was indeed a food shortage. Um you know, they, 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 the work on the wall hindered their ability to work on the crops. And so, you know, they needed food. So what did they do? Well, they whined and they complained. Uh, we need food. We need food. The next group said, oh, we're poor. We don't have enough money to buy the needed supplies. So we've mortgaged our lands and our vineyards and our houses, uh, and, and we're, we're, we're poor. And then the third group said, uh, we're indebted. Notice, the, this group not, didn't want to mortgage their property, uh, so they borrowed from their Jewish brothers to pay property taxes. And the problem was their friends, typically the nobles, were taking advantage of the situation. They were opportunistic, and they were charging exorbitant interest rates. Uh, so and that created an even bigger problem. In order to pay the interest, they had to sell some of their children now, I mean, that's a bad idea, but it's not as bad as it might sound. Essentially, they were just forcing them into labor to pay off their debt. And, you know, when you put it that way, not a bad idea. I've got some, I got some good workers at home, you know. No, I'm just kidding. But, uh, you know, they, they were paying off their creditors by, by giving their, their sons and daughters into a slave labor. Uh, so all of this left them in a hopeless state. Um, and it was all because of an internal focus, an internal crisis. They were discontent. Um, so their enemies remain an, a threat from the outside, and, and we're not through with Sanballat and Tobiah and that group. We're going to come back to them in coming weeks. But internally, you know, 
many Jews were taking advantage of other Jews. Morale was incredibly low. There were all kinds of pressures. They were physically exhausted, and they took to whining and complaining about it. One of the quickest ways to destroy a family, a church, an organization is to allow discontentment to dominate your thoughts. And the New Testament has a lot to say about this attitude, this focus. Paul told Timothy, for example, that godliness with contentment is great gain. Notice he says, we brought nothing into this world, and it's certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing with these, we shall be content. See, God's people should never have an, uh, an occasion to grumble and complain and whine. Our circumstances aren't always good. Here's a newsflash. Life isn't always going to be pleasant. It's not a bed of roses. But the solution isn't to start pointing fingers and complaining and whining. The solution, as we shall see, is to trust God, to be content with what you have and let God take care of the rest. Paul told the Philippians, not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. By the way, he's writing this from a prison cell. He's in Rome. He's, at the, he's had his three missionary journeys. Uh, he's well into the waning days, uh, waning years of his ministry. Whatever state I'm in, I, I've learned to be content. And then notice he says, I know how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere in all things, I've learned both to be full and to be hungry both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things, he said famously, through Christ who strengthens me. I had the opportunity on Thursday of this week to do a, a radio show with Stand Up for the Truth on par Bible paradoxes and antinomies. And although I didn't mention this verse, I mentioned quite a few others very similar uh, to it. I encourage you to go check that out. A, a paradox is something that seems contrary. In other words, how can Paul be both hungry and full. How can he be in need and abound, right? Uh, well, the answer is perspective. See, it's not really a paradox when you start to look at the context and look a little closer. In the Lord, he's got everything he needs. Humanly speaking, circumstantially speaking, sure, there are some tough times. But when you keep your mind fixed on the Lord, you don't have any need. The Bible says the Lord's given us everything we need for life and godliness. Um, David said uh, he's never seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging bread. It's all about attitude. And these Jewish people in Nehemiah's day got their eyes off of the Lord on their circumstances, and so they became discontent. The writer of Hebrews put it this way, Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. Be content with what you have. You know, I, I did another uh, podcast this week with uh, Lucas Doremus, who is the author of the book that uh, Gary's using in our Wednesday night Bible study on the parables. And we're talking with uh, Lucas Doremus about Jesus' enigmatic parables of the kingdom. Of course, the first one of those is the parable of the soils. And uh, Jesus, in a different context, talking to Israel in this case, talks about how there were some who received the seed they were literally saved, they believed, uh, but the, the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of, uh, deceitfulness of riches choked the word, and they became unfruitful. That's exactly what we saw happening to the children of Israel in this case. 
they began well. I mean, they were enthusiastic. They were motivated. They were they were uh, embraced the vision that Nehemiah had painted after he prayed about it of let's build back this wall for the glory of God. But it didn't take long for them to get their eyes off of the Lord and on their circumstances and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches. We're going to talk more about riches in a second because that was part of this internal danger as well. Uh, deceitfulness of riches is, you know, uh, I can get rich quick. I can do something to make money. I can win the lottery. I can, you know, and, you, and it's all a lie, but it leads to very poor decisions. Uh, but it choked them and they became unfruitful. They were discontent. Um, that's why Paul, another one of his prison epistles, uh, tells the Colossians and us by extension that we should set our mind on things above, not on things on earth. When you set your mind on things on earth, it's going to be discouraging. It's going to be negative. You're going to be overwhelmed with anxiety, and you're not going to be very fruitful. And that's exactly what happened in Nehemiah's day. It was they were their own worst enemy. They, the, the body was suffering because of their attitude. So number one, discontentment with their circumstances. Number two, they had a desire to get rich. They were greedy. Uh, they, they were opportunists, as I said, that were selfish. And, and they were looking only at their own wants. I mean, as with any situation, not everybody in the group was suffering at the same level. There were some that, you know, they were doing okay, right? And so these people thought it would be a good idea to take advantage of the situation. And so they started charging exorbitant interest of their brothers. And Nehemiah was deeply angry about that. It was a righteous indignation. Uh, he, as I said, he prayed about it, he considered it, and then he called an assembly. Um, but you know, some people were hurting and suffering, and other people who should have been more compassionate, namely the nobles and leaders, were, were exploiting uh, the situation. And he rebuked them for violating God's laws of charging their own people interest. That's clear from the Old Testament law. We see that in Leviticus 25. According to the Old Testament law, money could be loaned. That's true. We, we see that in there. It's very clear. But you weren't allowed to charge interest to, you know, take advantage of another person's distresses. Couldn't charge your brother's uh, interest. And so uh, Nehemiah pointed out the inconsistencies and hypocrisy of their own behavior when he said, look, you know, we've redeemed our Jewish brethren from the enemies, is the idea, who were sold to the nations. We've paid a price to help rescue them and so forth. And now, indeed, you're selling your own brethren and, and having them sold to us? That makes no sense. Um, Jews were selling fellow Jews into slavery, all because they had this desire to get rich. Again, they focused on greed and wealth and materialism in the moment, rather than keeping their eyes on the Lord. If we go back to Paul's writings to Timothy, he warns us that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Indeed, <laughs> right? How often... Have, has it led in our own lives to great unpleasantness when we begin to see dollar signs and make decisions based on dollar signs, you know? Um, I think that's what, you know, the New Testament is talking about 
uh, when it, Paul talks about in Corinthians to be a hilarious giver. It's the Greek word hilarious. Let us give willingly, not under compulsion. See, we believe in the New Testament that giving is no longer a law. Old Testament saints, by part of the Judaistic system, they had to give three times a year 10% of their annual income. So that if you do the math, you know, actually twice a year, twice a year, 10%, and then every third year, there was a third tithe, a third tenth percent that was given on that year. So it was twice, every year for two years in a row, you give 10% twice a year, that's 20% of your annual income. Every third year, you had a third percent, that was 30% that year. If you average it out, they were giving on average 23 and a third percent of their annual income. So by the way, when you come across legalists today that think every Christian ought to tithe, Ask them if they're giving 23 and a third percent of their income. If you're only giving 10 percent, you're not following the law. So the tenth, the tithe is a is a is a uh, guideline. If, you know, it's a good example that we see in the Old Testament. But today, in the spirit of of, of the church age, uh, in the in the indwelling age age where the Spirit indwells each of us, we're not under the law. We're under grace. Now the Bible's clear. We need to give to the local church. That's God's divine design. He established the local church today as a means of fulfilling the Great Commission. And as I said recently, I believe the primary avenue of giving ought to be through the local church. But that's between you and the Lord. And But he says, Paul says, you ought to give hilariously. You ought to give, you know, you ought not look at your circumstances. Oh, I can't afford to give. You can't afford not to give. If you just seek the Lord and give what he tells you to give. And so, uh, and, and then watch what he does. It's amazing. We've seen it again and again. And I was blessed as a young man to, to grow up in a home where my dad taught me the value of giving in the church. And from the first paycheck I ever got at a Schwinn bicycle shop, I gave a, a, a tithe at that time, a 10%, that's what I could afford, uh, of my meager paycheck to the Lord. I was making $3 an hour back then. That was minimum wage. I think it was $3.35 or $3.15 or something like that. And, uh, and so I've, I've practiced that good, you know, it was a good habit, and I've kept it throughout all my life. And we've seen again and again, Wendy and I, where the Lord has just provided abundantly. Uh, and I'm not a health, wealth, and prosperity guy saying, oh, if you give more, he's going to give, you know, you give $100, he's going to give you 1000 He may not give you anything, because the blessings of God take on different forms, right? But I know this, if we are faithful to generously, by grace, give as the Lord leads, He provides. And, uh, and, you know, we don't uh, change that principle when we're on hard times. And believe me, like some of you, through the years, our journey has brought us on some hard times. I didn't stop giving then. In fact, some cases I gave more because we learned another principle that when we're struggling and suffering, one way to help get our minds off of that is to focus on how can we help others. All of a sudden, you start thinking, oh, this person needs something. This person, I'm going to help them. I'm going to call them. I'm going to encourage them. I'm going to write them a note. And the first thing, you forget about your problems, right? So the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And in the days of Nehemiah, some people were obsessed with money. And Proverbs uh, saw this uh, in general and says, a sound heart, the right attitude, not discontentment, not a desire to get rich, is life. But envy is rottenness to the bones. It leads to great unpleasantness. Going back to that passage we mentioned a moment ago in Hebrews, where he said, be content with what you have. Remember, he also said, let your conduct be without covetousness. There's a correlation between contentment and covetousness. When you're content, you're not coveting. You're not trying to think of ways. How can I take advantage of the situation? You see a lot of that today, by the way. There are a lot of shysters out there. If you channel surf through the 
television, you know, satellite stations, you'll come across a bunch of people out there trying to sell you all kinds of stuff because the world's coming to an end and you got to buy this and buy that and buy this and buy that. And they're just, when it cuts to commercial off screen, they're just counting their money. They're not really genuinely helping you. Listen, nobody believes in preparedness more than me. I've been talking about it for 30 years. We have a whole Saturday podcast right now on preparedness. Bible tells us we ought to be prepared. But sometimes opportunists give you this constant drip feed of dread and trying to use fear to motivate people to buy things. That's not what this is about. Uh, that's not, certainly not what we're about at Not By Works. Uh, it's about being content uh, with what you have and, and not being covetous. So we saw their discontentment, their desire uh, to get rich, uh, and ultimately their, their, their crack in the armor internally was they were just disregarding God, which is really the opposite of what we should be doing in life. No matter what the circumstance, we need to focus on the Lord. They weren't acknowledging God with their actions and their conduct. They were disregarding Him. That's why Nehemiah said, should you not walk? in the fear of God? And by the way, he said, he gave a reason this is a problem, is that God's reputation is at stake. You're embarrassing our almighty God, Yahweh, who's protected us, delivered us, brought us back into the land. He's given us his unconditional promise and blessing. Fear God. Uh, fear God. The one who delivered them from Egypt, delivered them from Babylon. Now you would be a reproach to him. Well, what does it mean to fear the Lord? Uh, we've talked about this at various times over the last three years. It's a key principle of Scripture. I encourage you to remember this or maybe jot it down. We've, we've given this definition several times, but it's, it's important. The fear of God does not mean a dread that causes us to, res to, to hide from God. It's rather a recognition of God, an acknowledgement of God. The fear of God is not the fear that somehow he's going to hurt me. It's the fear that in light of who he is, I might hurt him. I want to live, act such, in such a way that it brings honor and glory to him. Fear of God, this kind of fear of God, this proper understanding of the fear of God, of acknowledging and recognizing there is a God and you are not him, that's what produces holy character and holy conduct. And, and, and because these Jewish uh, brothers and sisters had forsaken God and for, forgotten about God and gotten their eyes off of God, then they were not producing holy character. They were embarrassing God and causing all sorts of problems in their midst. Recognizing God, what does that mean? Well, it means taking God into account in every decision that you make, being aware of His reality and presence. You do what you do in light of God's presence, in light of God's revelation to you in His Word. It's not compartmentalizing. And a lot of Christians throughout 2,000 years of church history, that's what we've done. We compartmentalize. Oh, it's Sunday, so I'm going to go to church. But the rest of your life, you kind of just go through life and you just, you know, let the cares of this world choke you up. No, no. A, a true Christian, one that's functioning like he's supposed to, is going to acknowledge God in every aspect of life. And then no matter what your circumstance, you're going, okay, God's got this. Circumstances aren't good, but God is always good. And uh, so they were disregarding a God. And so Nehemiah says, restore now to them, even this day, a hundredth of the money. That phrase hundredth in Hebrew, that's the interest rate. It comports to 12% annually. That's a pretty excessive amount 
of interest, but it was actually kind of low by the Persian standards of the day. Some evil, unbelieving uh, rulers were charging 20%. That was not uncommon at all in that day. But in any event, they shouldn't charge any to their brethren. Fearing the Lord, regarding God and what you do. This anonymous psalmist put it this way, let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Again, to fear the Lord is to recognize there's a God. To see yourself in light of God's glory. David put it this way, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. This is Psalm 34, verse 8. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. There's no want to those who fear him. Remember discontentment? We're hungry. We're poor. We're in debt. Well, if you're fearing God, you're not going to have, you're not going to lack anything. Why? Because you're recognizing God. You're acknowledging Him in your presence. So you don't think about these needs, right? Of course, it doesn't mean you don't take practical steps. You know, we don't presume upon God's grace. We don't just wake up every day and sit on a pillow and say, okay, God, just do what you're going to do and just, you know, no, we go through the motions. We go to work. We go. We till the land. We plant the crops. We, you know, we do what we have to do. But we don't become so obsessed with our negative circumstances that we forget there's a God. Another anonymous psalmist in Psalm 96, verse 4 said, The Lord is great and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. Again, not a terror, but an acknowledgement that he's there when the other gods aren't. Right? Proverbs tells us what the fear of the Lord is. It's the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. You, understand, you want to know why so many people struggle with understanding what's going on in this world? And they just can't make sense of it, and it seems like it's filled with inequities and contradictions and problems. Well, because they're not fearing the Lord. They're not acknowledging God. They have no knowledge of the Holy One. But if you run everything through the grid of Scripture as He's revealed Himself to us in His Word and you acknowledge there's a God, then it doesn't mean from a human perspective everything's going to make sense. That's why I talked on Thursday about antinomies, these biblical antinomies. But it does mean that you're okay and you're at peace with the fact that I may not understand it. Like Paul said in Romans 11, look, who has known the mind of God? And who, you know, his, under, you know, his understanding is unsearchable. I'm not trying to be God and claim to have the mind of God, but I know there is a God, and I know he's got it figured out, so I'm going to let him handle it. I'll let him be God, and I'll be me, and, I, and I'm going to have an understanding that things are going to be okay. Proverbs goes on to say, it is the, you know, in the fear of the Lord, there is strong confidence. Are you fearful? Are you doubting? Are you wavering? How's your fear of the Lord? Are you acknowledging God in everything that you're doing? And by the way, at the end of the age, we're going to see all the nations come together in fear of God. Paul said every knee will bow and every tongue confess one day. This is in Revelation 15, which is kind of a foreshadowing of what's to come later in chapter 19 when Christ comes back. It's what we call a prolepsis, meaning it's describing something as if it's already happened, but really it's, it hasn't happened yet. It's as good as done, but it hasn't happened in time chronologically yet. And, and the writer of Revelation says here, Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? In other words, everyone will, for you alone are holy, and all nations shall come and worship before you. And when Christ comes back, that's what's going to happen. The whole earth will fear the Lord. So, uh, 
the response is is pretty amazing when 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 they were confronted you know with this discontentment this desire to get rich this disregard for god and their way of thinking and in their mindset how did they respond well, they said, we will restore it. We won't require anything from them. They're going to do what Nehemiah said to do. The people did according to this promise. And, and, and by the way, Nehemiah was, again, this righteous indignation. He was not happy. And he, he required the people to, to really step up and, and do what they said they were going to do. This was no empty promise. He understood that words were cheap and easy. And a lot of times... You know, when we get low enough, we'll, we'll cry out, oh, Lord, if you'll just get me out of this situation, I'll do this or this, and I'll never do that. And we make these promises, and a day later when things are better, we're like, we forget God again, and we don't fear the Lord. So he made these leaders take another step, to take an oath uh, before uh, the priests and, uh, and, and, and make, make this serious. And when he, when he shook out his robe, you know, the robes that they wore had folds in them, uh, and they would put stuff in there, different things. Um, and so as a metaphor and as a visual aid to what he was saying and the, and the urgency and the importance of it, he shook that all out and stuff was falling around. And you can just kind of see, you know, how that action might have been like, whoa, this is you know, Nehemiah is upset. You know, this is a big deal. And then he says, God's going to shake you if you don't turn it around and start focusing on him. And if you don't keep this oath and then, uh, uh, you know, again, uh, Nehemiah, as I talked about when we read the text, uh, didn't take advantage of the, the allowances and blessings that he got as being a governor. By the way, when you read some uh, commentators on Nehemiah, they try to suggest that chapter five takes place after the wall was finished. I don't think so at all. I, I think it's clear that the wall was still being uh, built, as we see in verse 16, um, plus just the flow of thought is chronological in Nehemiah. But uh, So he didn't take advantage of the provisions. Uh, he feared God, contrary to what the people were doing. He said, I, I, I fear God. Uh, and then he, as I said, he of his own resources, he provided for 150 people at the table because he didn't want to set a bad example. Uh, he said the, the bondage was heavy on this people, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to provide for them. I could have done it by taking some of the king's rations, but I'm going to take it out of my own coffers because it's important, and I know God will provide. And then he ends the chapter with this interesting little tidbit, which I find encouraging. He prays to God again, and he says, Remember me, God, for my good. Now, do you ever pray that? We probably don't pray it enough, honestly, because we feel it's kind of selfish, right? You know, basically, God, I'm a good person. Be good to me. Well, you know what? In the right attitude, in the right circumstance, that's perfectly acceptable. Because what you're saying is, and you, and you got to make sure you have the right heart attitude, right? You got to really fear God, you really acknowledge Him. But you can say, you know what, Lord? You promised to bless those who follow you. Lord, be who you said you'd be in this situation. Remember me, my God. Nehemiah had needs too. He had shortages. Rather than whine about it and complain about it and grumble about it, he feared God. And you see this juxtaposition throughout these 19 verses of the people not fearing God and Nehemiah fearing God. So am I my own worst enemy? Well, any discontentment, right? Uh, 
have this covetousness, this greed? Are you, are you focusing on money? Are you disregarding God? And as a takeaway today, I want to go back to an interesting message that Jesus gave that's often misunderstood, and that's the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7. This is that passage that begins, Judge not lest you be judged. Now, I don't, you know, I don't know how many times I've heard people cite that verse and say, you're not supposed to judge other people. Wrong. Here's a newsflash for you. Write it down. The Bible commands us to judge one another. Full stop. I'm just going to let that sink in for a moment. You should judge people. Judge just means to, to analytically look at what they're doing and draw some conclusions. You don't judge them as to whether they're going to heaven or hell. That's, that's by faith alone. And you can't look at someone's works and determine whether they're a Christian. There are certain improper judgments that we might be guilty of at times. But to say you're never supposed to judge someone is just patently and provably false. Again and again, the Bible tells us, tells us, judge their doctrine. And if you find their teaching false doctrine, you should shun them. Judge their behavior. If they're living in a sinful way, you ought, not, you, know, you ought to separate from them. You ought not hang around with them. Judge them for this. Judge them for that. So what's going on in Matthew 7 when Jesus says, judge not lest you be judged? Context, 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 right? Who's he talking about? He's talking about the Pharisees who, and he's speaking directly to them, who were hypocritically judging. They were behaving sinfully, selfishly, unrighteously in their own actions, but then lording it over others and, and, and improperly judging them. So it wasn't a universal, you should never judge. There's a right way and a wrong way to judge. And, and what he says here is, to the Pharisees, when you look at the speck in your brother's eye, you're forgetting about the plank in your own eye. And so this is what I want to want to leave you with as a as a takeaway from from this passage. And this is kind of what the Holy Spirit convicted me of. When we get our eyes off of the Lord and on our circumstances, as these the people in Nehemiah's day did, we become our own worst enemy. How? Because we're we're so focused on using a magnifying glass to look at other people, to look at other things, to look at our surroundings, to look at our circumstances, to look at our negative experiences, that we forget to step back and look in the mirror and examine our own reflection. And that's a general principle that, that works in a lot of applications, right? Use a mirror more than a magnifying glass, right? Check out your own heart first, and then somehow those circumstances will seem to blur and become less prominent and significant in your life. And, and especially when you look in your heart, if you're not fearing God, if you're not acknowledging God, confess that and say, Lord, you are God, I am not, and I'm trusting you in this situation. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time together today and these examples from history of times when God's people weren't really acting uh, in a way that honored you. And we confess that sometimes we do the same thing. Lord, help us to be content in whatever state we are in. And uh, Father, we pray that uh, if there's one here that doesn't know you, that they would, in simple faith, trust in your Son and our Savior first, so they can become part of the family of God, and then they can have the right perspective and the indwelling spirit to encourage and, and convict them. Lord, everyone's a sinner, and we know that only by faith alone in Christ alone can anyone be forgiven and have eternal life. So I pray if there's one within the sound of my voice that hasn't trusted in you initially for salvation, that today they would do that. But for those who have, those of us that know you by faith, strengthen our faith, 
draw us back into right fellowship with you. May your correction and discipline be gentle, and uh, may we begin afresh by acknowledging you in every aspect of our life. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.